Howard Pyle's Book of Pirates by Howard Pyle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carrie Hayes. The Ghost of Captain Brand, Part 2. There were only two other passengers aboard. The Reverend Simon Stiles, the master of a flourishing academy in Spanish Town, and his wife, a good worthy old couple, but very quiet, and would sit in the great cabin by the hour together, reading, so that, what with Sir John Malio staying all the time in his own cabin, with those two trunks he held so precious, it fell upon Barnaby True, in great part, to show attention to the young lady and glad enough he was of the opportunity, as any one may guess, for when you consider a brisk, lively young man of one-and-twenty, and a sweet, beautiful miss of seventeen, so thrown together day after day for two weeks, the weather being very fair, as I have said, and the ship tossing and bowling along before a fine, humming breeze that sent white caps all over the sea, and with nothing to do but sit and look at that blue sea and the bright sky overhead, it is not hard to suppose what was to befall, and what pleasure it was to Barnaby True to show attention to her. But, oh, those days when a man is young, and whether wisely or no, fallen in love! How often during that voyage did our hero lie awake in his berth at night, tossing this way and that, without sleep, not that he wanted to sleep if he could, but would rather lie so awake, thinking about her, and staring into the darkness. Poor fool! He might have known that the end must come to such a fool's paradise before very long. For who was he to look up to Sir John Malio's granddaughter? He, the supercargo of a merchant ship, and she, the granddaughter of a baronet. Nevertheless, things went along very smooth and pleasant, until one evening, when all came of a sudden to an end. At that time, he and the young lady had been standing for a long while together, leaning over the rail and looking out across the water through the dusk toward the westward, where the sky was still of a lingering brightness. She had been mightily quiet and dull all that evening, but now of a sudden, she began, without any preface whatever, to tell Barnaby about herself and her affairs. She said that she and her grandfather were going to New York, that they might take passage thence to Boston Town, there to meet her cousin, Captain Malio, who was stationed in garrison at that place. Then she went on to say that Captain Malio was the next heir to the Devonshire estate, and that she and he were to be married in the fall. But poor Barnaby, what a fool was he, to be sure. Methinks when she first began to speak about Captain Malio, he knew what was coming. But now that she had told him, he could say nothing, but stood there, staring across the ocean, his breath coming hot and dry as ashes in his throat. She, poor thing, went on to say, in a very low voice, that she had liked him from the very first moment she had seen him, and had been very happy for these days, 
and would always think of him as a dear friend who had been very kind to her, who had so little pleasure in life, and so would always remember him. Then they were both silent, until at last Barnaby made shift to say, though in a hoarse and croaking voice, that Captain Malio must be a very happy man, and that if he were in Captain Malio's place, he would be the happiest man in the world. Thus, having spoken, and so found his tongue, he went on to tell her, with his head all in a whirl, that he too loved her, and that what she had told him struck him to the heart, and made him the most miserable, unhappy wretch in the whole world. She was not angry at what he said, nor did she turn to look at him, but only said in a low voice, he should not talk so, for that it could only be a pain to them both to speak of such things, and that whether she would or no, she must do everything as her grandfather bade her, for that he was indeed a terrible man. To this, poor Barnaby could only repeat that he loved her with all his heart, that he had hoped for nothing in his love, but that he was now the most miserable man in the world. It was at this moment, so tragic for him, that someone who had been hiding nigh them all the while suddenly moved away, and Barnaby True could see in the gathering darkness that it was that villain manservant of Sir John Malio's, and knew that he must have overheard all that had been said. The man went straight to the great cabin, and poor Barnaby, his brain all a-tingle, stood looking after him feeling that now, indeed, the last drop of bitterness had been added to his trouble, to have such a wretch overhear what he had said. The young lady could not have seen the fellow, for she continued, leaning over the rail, and Barnaby True standing at her side, not moving, but in such a tumult of many passions, that he was like one bewildered, and his heart beating as though to smother him. So they stood, for I know not how long, when, of a sudden, Sir John Malio comes running out of the cabin, without his hat, but carrying his gold-headed cane, and so straight across the deck to where Barnaby and the young lady stood, that spying wretch close at his heels, grinning like an imp. "'You hussy!' bawled out Sir John, so soon as he had come pretty near them and in so loud a voice that all on deck might have heard the words. And as he spoke, he waved his cane back and forth as though he would have struck the young lady, who, shrinking back almost upon the deck, crouched as though to escape such a blow. You hussy, he bawled out with vile oaths, too horrible here to be set down. What do you do here with this Yankee supercargo, not fit for a gentlewoman to wipe her feet upon? Get to your cabin, you hussy. Only it was something worse he called her this time. Before I lay this cane across your shoulders. What with the whirling of Barnaby's brains and the passion into which he was already melted, what with his despair and his love and his anger at this address, a man gone mad could scarcely be less accountable for his actions than he was at that moment. Hardly knowing what he did, 
He put his hand against Sir John Malio's breast and thrust him violently back, crying out upon him in a great, loud, hoarse voice for threatening a young lady, and saying that for a farthing he would wretch the stick out of his hand and throw it overboard. Sir John went staggering back with the push Barnaby gave him, and then caught himself up again. Then, with a great bellow, ran roaring at our hero, whirling his cane about, and I do believe would have struck him, and God knows then what might have happened, had not his manservant caught him and held him back. Keep back, cried our hero, still mighty horse. Keep back. If you strike me with that stick, I'll fling you overboard. By this time, what with the sound of loud voices and the stamping of feet, some of the crew and others aboard were hurrying up, and the next moment Captain Manley and the first mate, Mr. Friesden, came running out of the cabin. But Barnaby, who was by this fairly set a-going, could not stop himself now. "'And who are you, anyhow?' he cried out. "'To threaten to strike me, and to insult me, who am as good as you!' You dare not strike me. You may shoot a man from behind as you shot poor Captain Brand on the Rio Cobra River, but you won't dare strike me face to face. I know who you are and what you are. By this time, Sir John Malio had ceased to endeavor to strike him, but stood stock still, his great bulging eyes staring as though they would pop out of his head. What's all this? cries Captain Manley bustling up to them with Mr. Friesden. What does all this mean? But as I have said, our hero was too far gone now to contain himself until all that he had to say was out. The damned villain insulted me and insulted the young lady, he cried out, panting in the extremity of his passion. And then he threatened to strike me with his cane. But I know who he is and what he is. I know what he's got in his cabin and those two trunks, and where he found it, and whom it belongs to. He found it on the shores of the Rio Cobra River, and I have only to open my mouth and tell what I know about it. At this, Captain Manley clapped his hand upon our hero's shoulder and fell into shaking him so that he could scarcely stand, calling out to him the while to be silent. What do you mean? he cried. An officer of this ship to quarrel with a passenger of mine? Go straight to your cabin and stay there till I give you leave to come out again. At this, Master Barnaby came somewhat back to himself and into his wits again with a jump. But he threatened to strike me with his cane, Captain, he cried out, and that I won't stand from any man. No matter what he did, said Captain Manley very sternly, Go to your cabin as I bid you, and stay there till I tell you to come out again. And when we get to New York, I'll take pains to tell your stepfather of how you have behaved. I'll have no such rioting as this aboard my ship. Barnaby True looked around him, but the young lady was gone. Nor, in the blindness of his frenzy, had he seen when she had gone, nor whither she went. As for Sir John Malio, he stood in the light of a lantern, his face gone as white as ashes. And I do believe if a look could kill, 
the dreadful, malevolent stare he fixed upon Barnaby True would have slain him where he stood. After Captain Manley had so shaken some wits into poor Barnaby, he, unhappy wretch, went into his cabin as he was bidden to do, and there, shutting the door upon himself and flinging himself down, all dressed as he was, upon his berth, yielded himself over to the profoundest passion of humiliation and despair. There he lay, for I know not how long, staring into the darkness, until by and by, in spite of his suffering and his despair, he dozed off into a loose sleep that was more like waking than sleep, being possessed continually by the most vivid and distasteful dreams, from which he would waken, only to doze off and to dream again. It was from the midst of one of these extravagant dreams that he was suddenly aroused by the noise of a pistol shot, and then the noise of another, and another, and then a great bump, and a grinding jar, and then the sound of many footsteps, running across the deck and down into the great cabin. Then came a tremendous uproar of voices in the great cabin, the struggling as men's bodies being tossed about, striking violently against the partitions and bulkheads. At the same instant arose a screaming of women's voices, and one voice, and that Sir John Malos crying out as in the greatest extremity, You villains! You damned villains! And with the sudden detonation of a pistol fired into the close space of the great cabin. Barnaby was out in the middle of his cabin in a moment, and taking only time enough to snatch down one of the pistols that hung at the head of his berth, flung out into the great cabin to find it as black as night the lantern slung there having been either blown out or dashed out into darkness. The prodigiously dark space was full of uproar, the hubbub and confusion pierced through and through by that keen sound of women's voices screaming, one in the cabin and the other in the stateroom beyond. Almost immediately, Barnaby pitched headlong over two or three struggling men scuffling together upon the deck falling with a great clatter and the loss of his pistol, which, however, he regained almost immediately. What all the uproar meant he could not tell, but he presently heard Captain Manley's voice from somewhere suddenly calling out, You bloody pirate! Would you choke me to death? Where with some notion of what had happened came to him like a flash, and that they had been attacked in the night by pirates. Looking toward the companionway, he saw, outlined against the darkness of the night without, the blacker form of a man's figure, standing still and motionless as a statue in the midst of all this hubbub. And so, by some instinct, he knew in a moment that that must be the master maker of all this devil's brew. Therewith, still kneeling upon the deck, he covered the bosom of that shadowy figure point-blank, as he thought, with his pistol, and instantly pulled the trigger. In the flash of red light, and in the instant stunning report of the pistol shot, Barnaby saw, as stamped upon the blackness, a broad, flat face with fishy eyes, 
a lean, bony forehead with what appeared to be a great blotch of blood upon the side, a cocked hat trimmed with gold lace, a red scarf across the breast, and the gleam of brass buttons. Then the darkness, very thick and black, swallowed everything again. But in the instant Sir John Malio called out, in a great loud voice, My God, tis William Brand! Therewith came the sound of someone falling heavily down. The next moment, Barnaby's sight coming back to him again in the darkness, he beheld that dark and motionless figure still standing exactly where it had stood before, and so knew either that he had missed it or else that it was of so supernatural a sort that a leaden bullet might do it no harm. Though, if it was indeed an apparition that Barnaby held in that moment, there is this to say, that he saw it as plain as ever he saw a living man in all of his life. This was the last our hero knew, for the next moment somebody, whether by accident or design he never knew, struck him such a terrible, violent blow upon the side of the head that he saw forty thousand stars flash before his eyeballs, and then, with a great humming in his head, swooned dead away. When Barnaby True came back to his senses again, it was to find himself being cared for with great skill and nicety, his head bathed with cold water, and a bandage being bound about it as carefully as though a chirurgeon was attending to him. He could not immediately recall what had happened to him, nor until he had opened his eyes to find himself in a strange cabin, extremely well fitted and painted with white and gold, the light of a lantern shining in his eyes, together with the gray of the early daylight through the dead eye. Two men were bending over him, one a negro in a striped shirt with a yellow handkerchief around his head and silver earrings in his ears. The other, a white man, clad in a strange outlandish dress of a foreign make and with great mustachios hanging down and with gold earrings in his ears. It was the latter who was attending to Barnaby's hurt with such extreme care and gentleness. All this Barnaby saw with his first clear consciousness after his swoon. Then remembering what had befallen him, and his head beating as though it would split asunder, he shut his eyes again, contriving with great effort to keep himself from groaning aloud, and wondering as to what sort of pirates these could be who would first knock a man in the head so terrible a blow as that which he had suffered, and then take such care to fetch him back to life again, and to make him easy and comfortable. Nor did he open his eyes again, but lay there gathering his wits together, and wondering thus, until the bandage was properly tied about his head and sewed together. Then, once more he opened his eyes, and looked up, to ask where he was. Either they who were attending to him did not choose to reply, or else they could not speak English, for they made no answer, excepting by signs. For the white man, seeing that he was now able to speak, and so was come back into his senses again, nodded his head three or four times, and smiled with a grin of his white teeth, 
and then pointed as though toward a saloon beyond. At the same time, the negro held up our hero's coat and beckoned for him to put it on, so that Barnaby, seeing that it was required of him to meet someone without, arose, though with a good deal of effort, and permitted the negro to help him on with his coat, still feeling mightily dizzy and uncertain upon his legs, his head beating fit to split, and the vessel rolling and pitching at a great rate as though upon a heavy ground swell. So, still sick and dizzy, he went out into what was indeed a fine saloon beyond, painted in white and gilt like the cabin he had just quitted, and fitted in the nicest fashion, a mahogany table, polished very bright, extending the length of the room, and a quantity of bottles, together with glasses of clear crystal, arranged in a hanging rack above. End of the Ghost of Captain Brand, Part 2